Good morning, everyone, and happy new year. 2021, everything in 2020 is wiped away. It's just a calendar. You can actually throw the calendar away. I have no idea what 2021 is going to bring, but it's already started amazing. The beauty of God's creation surrounds us. So I thought, why not look at a book in Scripture that we often pick stories out of, but we rarely go through it verse by verse. And that's what we're going to be doing this year through the book of Judges. And there's going to be a lot of familiar stories, and there's going to be a lot of intrigue and war and uh, deception and victory on God's behalf. And it's going to be a beautiful experience for us as we go through it. And as I was uh, putting this uh, sermon series together, I was reminded of a quote by, uh, of all people, Harry Truman. And he once said that in periods where there is no leadership, society stands still. So when there's a moment where there is no leadership, Truman says society stands still. You kind of get where he's going at. It's hard for society to progress if there's no leadership. I think that quote, even though I used it, is absolutely wrong. I don't think society stands still when there's no leadership. I think it absolutely decays and falls apart. And when you are left with no leadership, which is sometimes authority, when you're left with no authority and no leadership, what generally happens? What did we see that happened in 2020 when there was no police in the major city? What happened? People were very polite to one another. They respected businesses and property. They respected all the laws. Um, they were polite. They didn't throw anything, did they? No, when there's no rules, when there's no leadership, when there's no authority, when there's no structure, what happens to society? Chaos. It's absolute chaos. And so I understand what he means. You know, the society won't progress. But I think it's more than just standing still. It is decay falling apart. And I would say specifically, when there's no godly leadership, when there is no leadership pointing you to follow God and love him and love others, when there's no leadership saying what is right and wrong according to God's truth, when there is no leadership that is standing up and saying, thus says the Lord, repent and believe, when there's no leadership directing you to the throne of God, not only does society decay, but God's people grow weak. They become parched, and they become, of all dreaded things, compromised. Compromised. And the book of Judges shows that cycle of having godly leadership and then losing it, having godly authority and then losing it, and society, all of that society, simply falls apart and decays into chaos in fact, I don't know how much of a sell this is to you to come back next week, but the book of Judges probably is the most depressing book of Scripture. It is. Depressing if you think of the cycle of over 350 years. Those 20-some chapters last 350 years, longer than America's been a country. It's lasted 350 years, and the cycle is going to become so repetitive that you are going to guess exactly what the next chapter is going to bring. 
It is going to bring God's people crying out, saying, help us, save us, we've lost our way. And God's saying, I will save you. So here is a leader, follow. And that leader is raised up, and the leader not only is a victorious military leader, but they are a spiritual leader. And they reestablish worship, and they reestablish reading God's word, and listening to the prophets, and following the ways of God, and ridding the culture of sin and shame and the evil, wicked practices of the society around it. And then for about 30, 40 years, the people are on fire for God. There is massive revivals. Everyone is getting saved. Everyone is doing sacrifices. There's renewed energy. We need more than just a tabernacle. We need a temple. And then their children forget the ways of the Lord. And by 40 years after that leader was raised up to lead them to victory, both spiritually and physically, they are back in the same compromising place they were 40 years before. Doing the same thing their parents said, we have to rid our land of these thoughts and these practices. They were back doing it. And that cycle lasted 350 years. Talk about peaks and mountaintop experiences and then the valley. Mountaintop experiences and then the valley. Great revival and then great shame. Cycle after cycle after cycle for 350 years. And I wish I could tell you by the end of the book of Judges, Israel, after 350 years of this practiced cycle, was better. But they won't be. But that doesn't mean we can't be. Because we have something Israel did not have in full. We had a full understanding of who Jesus Christ is. We have a full understanding of who our real king is, who our real leader is, who our real shepherd is, and that's Jesus Christ. They knew the promise, but we're living in the past reality and present power of his resurrection. They didn't have that benefit. They had the promises. They had belief and faith and trust, yes. But we have the reality now. And so we can stop the cycle of these mountaintop experiences and then these valley lows. And I'm not just talking about in our nation, in our culture, in our society, of what it promotes as good and right. I'm talking about your personal spiritual life. We can stop the cycle of being hot and cold, hot and cold, hot and cold, on fire for God, on fire for God. And then a week or a month or a year might pass before we are actively pursuing God spiritually. We're going through the motions. We're still here on Sunday morning. We're still raising our hand. We're still doing those things, but we've lost the heart connection. And so every week we are going to be pressed to that heart connection moment. Are we simply in a valley or are we on the mountaintop? Because we can reside on the mountaintops. There is nothing that says once you've had a spiritual enlightening moment of excitement for God, it doesn't mean that the next week you're on the bottom. You can remain at that mountaintop experience with God, and, and the book of Judges is going to encourage us and instruct us on how to do that. The basic theme of the entire book, and I really have gone a little bit further than I needed to, is that when there's no biblical leadership, no examples or motivation and accountability, people tend to fall into bad habits, and many will compromise their faith. And the danger, the real danger, 
is, Tim, that can't happen to me. It won't happen to me. I will not hit a dry spell. I will not hit a spell where I give up on volunteering and serving. I'll give up. That real temptation of compromising is for all of us to pay attention to. Because the moment you think you can't fall to it, we become a Peter. Remember Peter's great boast, uh, the, the, week of, um, the week of Christ's trial and, and death and resurrection? Remember Peter's great boast? Jesus says to the entire company of disciples, his closest of close friends, everyone's going to desert me and deny me. And then Peter, oh, they may, but I won't. I won't fall to that. And, you know... You never want to be the one who's telling Jesus no. Peter happened to do it on multiple occasions and never learned his lesson. But he felt that he was going to be strong enough in the moment of temptation that he would never deny him. And Jesus said, I've prayed for you. I prayed that when you get to that point that Satan would not rob you of the joy of this relationship. But Peter was so confident in himself that I will remain spiritually mature and excited about God, that he fell. And he fell hard. Hard! But Jesus restored him. That is the beautiful lesson of God, is that he restores his children every single time. Now that doesn't mean, and we've seen this before, that doesn't mean that I am then free to go sin and compromise and live in these valleys and live in darkness and live any way I want because I know God's going to rescue me. Perish the thought, Paul says. Perish the thought in Romans 6. Don't live that way. But when we do fall, God picks us up every single time. Now the book of Judges really starts with the last few verses of the book of Joshua, because that sets the stage. So the last few verses of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24, we're told in verse 29 specifically, after these things, Joshua son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. So that really is setting the stage. And then the rest of the chapter talks about him being buried in the promised land, Joshua, uh, Joseph's bones being brought from Egypt into the promised land and being buried and people setting up um, their, their residence in the promised land. Before that verse, verse 29, Joshua had been the right-hand man of what famous Old Testament character? Moses. And so everything before this happening in the book of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua is all about God's promised people going back into the promised land through the leadership of Moses and then eventually through the leadership of Joshua and Caleb. That was Moses' right-hand warriors and leaders. Joshua dies. And precursing his death, Joshua and Caleb had led Israel into the promised land we have the Battle of Jericho that takes place. We have other battles that have been taking place. And, and Joshua has led as far as he can go. The promised land is not yet conquered. God gave it to them as an inheritance, but they still had a lot of Canaanites and other ites that they had to kick out of the land. And God promised victory if they would follow him. But their main guy was gone. 
I mean, the right-hand warrior, Caleb was still alive, and he still was a warrior, and he still plays a part in the book of Judges for the first couple chapters, I think just really the first chapter. But uh, their go-to guy for inspiration is gone. And what Israel lost when Joshua died was not just a political figure that encouraged them, but he also stood sort of with Aaron and the priesthood as the one who motivated God's people to follow God. And they also lost, probably scarier than both of those things, their military leader. The one who was in charge of their army. The one who had all their strategy, all their plans laid out, knew exactly what they needed to take and how to take it. And he was a man of incredible faith. I don't expect you to remember it, but early on in the book of uh, Exodus, God sends several spies into the promised land. Do you remember that? And only two spies came back saying, yeah, there's giants there, but we can take them. And not because they physically could take them, but they knew their God could take them. And that was Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies that said, it doesn't matter if there's giants there, we can take them because God is our God and there is no one that can stand up to God. So Joshua was a man of incredible faith and now he died. That is a major blow to that country, to that culture, not just spiritually, but physically as well. And that leads us to the very first two verses of the book of Joshua, I mean, the book of Judges. And I am going to confuse that multiple times over the next several months. So when I'm saying Joshua, just substitute, he's probably talking, talking about the book of Judges. So I'm going to end up saying, you know, in Joshua 4, no, 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 just go, okay, it's Judges 4. So just automatically assume I'm talking about Judges, except for this opening bit where I bring in Joshua's death. This is going to confuse me. But you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the book of Judges. So in the very first verse, the very first part of that first verse, in the book of Judges, chapter 1, it says, after the death of Joshua. We're not told how long that's happened, but after his death. So we've already caught up in the book of Joshua, I know that, Joshua chapter 24, that he died and was reburied in the promised land, or buried in the promised land. So the first verse of the book of Judges starts out by reminding us, if you don't remember what happened in the book before, the chapter before, Joshua is now dead. What a huge blow. In fact, it would be just as traumatic for the Israelites as learning that Moses had died up on top of the mountain. It would have been just as difficult because Joshua was their military leader par excellence. And he has led them so far into the promised land, starting to take it. And so the timing could not have been worse for Israel because Israel was in front of a major cultural shock. These are people who... I don't even know if I can describe how horrific they were morally. These are the people that gave us the practice of taking your child, no matter how old they are, remember that, no matter how old they are, if they are your child, you would often sacrifice them as a living sacrifice upon molten rock and metals. And the louder your children screamed through the pain, 
the better chance you had that your God would hear you. Wow. That is absolutely goosebumping terrible. That was their neighbor. That's who they lived among. The sanctity of life was nothing to them. The sanctity of marriage was nothing to them. Slavery and absolute destructive slavery was their common workforce. They were as heathen as you can possibly imagine, with the bonus that they were zealous for their idols. Zealous for their idols. And your leader, who was going to lead you into this land to gain victory, died. And so there's no doubt that the Israelites asked the Lord, who's going to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? The task was very clear. Lord, help us. We don't know what to do. We have no leader. We have no authority. We have no structure. We're we're a million more strong. Yeah, there's a lot of us, but if no one's going to lead us, how are we going to gain victory over this enemy? That is scary. That they just simply won't take our houses and take our women, but they will be destructive. Wickedly destructive. How are we going to fight that? It's an enemy you don't even know where they're living. I mean, they're in a land that they're not used to. How are we going to win? I know God has said, this is our land, but we still need to take it. What do we do now? Our leader's dead. And so they do exactly the right thing. They don't pretend, all right, we got this. All right, everybody ready? On the count of three. One, two, three, go! No, no, no. (laughs) They didn't just simply brazenly take it upon themselves and say, I know how to gain victory. They open up their arms and they look up to heaven and say, help. What a beautiful place to be as one of God's children. To be so desperate at what's in front of you that your eyes directly go to heaven and say, help. You are demonstrating humility that is honorable to God. I don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers. We need someone with all the answers. It demonstrates incredible faith. Not just humility, but faith. Where are you going to go to for support? I'll tell you where America would go to for support if we were facing an enemy like that. Where would we go? Our military. Trust and confidence in our military. And we should. It's amazing. But we would start putting faith and trust in the physical things that we have to combat an enemy. Well, Israel had a physical need. They had to fight a real physical army that knew the terrain, knew the area, and was well organized. But they went to the one who could give them not just physical help, but spiritual help. Help, Lord, help. There is never a more honest, deep prayer than when you feel that you are at wit's end, that you have no answers, that you have no idea how to get through it, to say, Lord, help. Lord, help. Do you think he's ever going to turn away a prayer like that? Do you think he's ever going to say, louder? Again, please? No, he's not like that. We're like that. Or you need help? Say it again. Use the magic word, please. We hold it over people to give them help. 
God never lords it over us and says, I'll make you beg more and more and more until I help. You cry out and he'll help. Look at poor Jonah. Poor Jonah is in the bottom of an ocean, in the belly of a fish, and finally realizes, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. God, help. And what does God do? I'll help you. I'll help you. You know that God's memory is perfect. He never forgets a thing. He has full and absolute, complete knowledge of what you're going through and what you're thinking inside. He knows it perfectly. He doesn't have to guess by body language. So he knows that Jonah's been in that spot before. He knows that the people of Israel have been in that spot before. He knows you've been in that spot before, and yet he still says, yes, I'm here, I'll answer you, and I'll help. And the thing is that God has never left us to ourselves. He's never left Israel by themselves, fending for themselves, saying, go do it. He's always been there. It's whether or not we acknowledge it and rely upon it. And praying out to God in desperation help demonstrates that you're relying on him. We need to get into the practice of doing that first and fast. Because we are so often relying upon ourselves to get through it, Or we talk to other people and complain that we're going through it instead of just going to God saying, help. He should be our first go-to, not Facebook. What do I do? These, you know, why in the world, even though I'm on Facebook, would you ever ask Facebook for advice on how to live your life? Do you know what kind of things you're going to get? Weird. But when you ask God, what are you going to get? you're going to get the almighty God of heaven and earth who is holy, 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 who moves the mountains with the mention of its name, who raises the deep, who brings the rain, who brings growth, who brings light from billions of miles away to shine in the night sky, saying, here I am, what do you need? Why would we ever go somewhere else when we have God constantly present saying, I will lead you, I will lead you, I will lead you. And so God answers the question. The timing is Joshua is dead. The task is Israel crying out to God, asking the Lord, who's going to help us? And the Lord in verse 2 answers and says, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. Judah, at this point, is not a geographical spot on a map. Judah is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were the most numerous. They were the kingly tribe. They had a lot of warriors that came out of Judah, um, including Christ's lineage, king of kings, lord of lords. But Judah was sort of that, uh, that brother, that maybe was just bigger, faster, stronger, had a little bit more bravery. They had some guts. They had the numbers. And God says, I'm going to put Judah, instead of Joshua, I'm going to put Judah in charge of taking care of the inhabitants of the land that I'm giving you. Judah's going to be my leader. See, God does not have to 
physically all the time take us by the hand and lead us through something. God puts other people in our lives that accomplishes that on his behalf. And so we need to be mindful of that because sometimes someone might come to us and just spurs a little moment of reflection of going, is that right that I'm doing that? Is that the right way of approaching it? And God uses people to motivate us and to challenge us and to give us examples in leadership on how to respond to those situations. And so God says, hey, I'm here. I am your God. I'm going to give you victory. There's never a moment where I'm going to leave you. But physically, I want you to look to the tribe of Judah because I've given them the task and the resources to lead you into victory. Now, God had promised Abraham way back before there were Jewish people and Israelites promised Abraham, I was going to make you a great nation, changing your name from Abram to Abraham, the father of many, instead of just the father. And um, I'm going to give you this promised land. Now, you're not going to get there right away. You're going to live there for a while, but eventually your descendants are going to end up in Egypt for over 400 years. They're going to be slaves, and I'm going to lead you, and I'm going to give you the land. Well, in the meantime, about 600 years have passed from that promise that God gave to Abraham to this time. About 600 years have passed. And in that 600 years, a lot of people have moved into that promised land. And they've been there for hundreds of years. But they hate God. They want nothing to do with God. They want nothing to do with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believe in idolatry and living sacrificing. Uh, They are wicked beyond means. They are evil. They hate God the truth of God, and they refuse to acknowledge him. They would rather worship a stone or a piece of wood that they've carved on their own than to bow the knee to a sovereign God and acknowledge him as their Lord and Savior. But God has given them the task, the answer, I will give you a leader in the tribe of Judah. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 22, it says, you shall not fear them. This is God motivating Through Moses, the people of Israel, motivating them, saying, You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Now, God has not promised, as much as we may want, that God fights for America. All right? And I, whoa, those, those might even be fighting words. I don't know. God has never promised that he fights for America. Whom does God fight for? And I hope I said that English properly. Or, wow, that wasn't even right. Who does God fight for? His people. His people. If they happen to be Americans, he fights for them. If they happen to be Canadian, he fights for them. If they happen to be Mexican, he fights for them. He fights for his people. Not a nationality anymore. But back then, that nationality and his people were one and the same. One and the same. That's no longer the case today. But he fights for his people. And he's made his people the promise You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. And they were scared. They were so scared that they disobeyed God at the very beginning and had to wander for 40 years. Even though Joshua and Caleb said, we can take them with God's help, the other 10 spies gave a negative report, and they believed the negative report. And so God said, you're going to wander for 40 years until this generation that did not believe me dies. And the new generation who believes me will go forward into the promised land. 
God's made us that very same promise that our enemies, whoever they might be, we do not need to fear them. The Lord fights our battles. But you may ask, Tim, how do we then deal with our enemies? Because they might be right in front of us. How do we deal with our enemies? Thank you very much for that question because I know you were thinking of it. And if you ever wonder where in the world can I go in Scripture to just kind of find the nut and bolts of how to live the Christian life, I'm going to always tell you it's a Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. There is no better place to start. And God tells us, Jesus tells us, how to deal with our enemies. And he says in verse 43 of chapter 5, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's kind of what the saying was in Israel at the time. Love your neighbor but hate your enemy. But I tell you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, he's talking about people, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Even sinners love their fellow sinners. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus gives us the key on how to deal with our enemies. Yes, we can cry up to God and say, help and save, protect, lead us into victory, especially in a culture that is morally less and less godly, less and less holy. It's less good. We still have the responsibility to those who hate our message of faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. We still have those enemies who hate God's view of marriage, God's view of sexuality, God's view of money, God's view of respect for authority. Even though they hate that message, we are still called to demonstrate love and compassion to everyone. Not because they deserve it, but because God says, I take care of the righteous and the unrighteous alike. I bring them rain and sun. The least you can do is love them as well. And I know that your next question is going to be, Tim, that is really hard. How? Do I do that? Thank you for asking, because Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, that wonderful verse that says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Stop looking for your own effort to love those who hate you and start crying out to God saying, help lead me into a life of love. Help me. See, when you rely upon him, he delivers he is not just a God who promises pie in the sky. He delivers you a banquet at your very feet every time you cry out to him and say, help me. I don't know how to do this. I can't do this. God, you don't understand how evil they are. Because his answer will be, I, I know how evil you are. All right? And yet I've placed my love upon you. 
Rely on me and I will lead you on straight paths. I will lead you on how to love those that are unlovable, how to be merciful to those who are unmerciful to you, how to turn the other cheek, how to endure persecution, how to endure being shamed and ridiculed. Come to me. I will give you the strength. So as our elders come forward for communion this morning, I want us to remember that when we feel weak, when we feel unable to pursue what God has called us to do, especially in reference to enemies of God, enemies of his truth, of love, of life, of godliness, we can cry out to him, and he will answer us every single time with, yes, I'm here, and yes, I'll help. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for reminding us of the simple truth of being able to cry out to you, and you not only hear us, but you answer us. Father, thank you for answering the cry of the Israelites for help. And Father, answer our cries for help to overcome the compromise that is in our life and the challenges we face in our culture. May you show yourself to be victorious in our spiritual battles. In Christ's name, all of God's people said, Amen.